We're continuing our series on Genesis. We're in chapter 38, and uh, we're going to read a relatively long passage, almost the whole chapter, but it's worthy of reading. I was with a man this week whose father was a minister. His grandfather was a minister. His daughter's a minister. And in our conversation, uh, we talked about how different his understanding of the scriptures were from his own father and mother. And I said to him, well, what did your mom think of you being a Presbyterian? And he said to her dying day, she was concerned for my soul. And the reason is because she believed that the essence of the scripture is law. What you and I must do to please the Lord. What you and I must do in order to gain his favor. She didn't really apprehend grace in all of its glory. And this chapter is one that I've heard taught from a very legalistic standpoint. And I would believe, as you probably will too when we get through it, that it's not at all about the law. It's all about the grace of God. And so we begin in chapter 38, verse 1. Now remember last week we were beginning the Joseph story, so we're, here we have his brother Judah. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite, certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and he call, she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she was born. She bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he too would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah with his sheep shears, he and his friends Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up and sat at the entrance of Enim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? 
He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge, then you send it, until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in to her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put it on the garment, put on the garments of widowhood. About three months later, verse 24, Judah said, told Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. He was told, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is, in, she is, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her, let sh- bring her out. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and put a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out and the scar- with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Edwin Rushworth was for years a leading skeptic in the world. He didn't care for any religion, certainly for Christianity. And yet his friends and his family began to badger him and said, you know, you haven't even read the Bible. Why don't you read the Bible before you make such a determination? And so he said to them, I will. And he decided that he would read an hour a day the Bible. However, he didn't start as most people would in Genesis. He began to skip around. He read some Old Testament, New Testament. And after reading the first day for an hour, he said to his wife, if this book is right, we're wrong. A week later, after reading more, he said to his wife, if this book is right, we're not only wrong, we're lost. After three weeks, he said to his wife, if this book is right... We're not saved. And after four weeks, they were. And when they entered the kingdom of God, there were no more ifs. Selena surely had no ifs. When she married the Scottish Earl of Huntingdon, she became a Christian, and everybody knew it. And the reason everyone knew it is because she had no problem testifying to the lordship of Christ in her life, even though she was acquainted with a lot of grief and hardships. One day a man asked her, how can you, a woman of nobility, truly be a Christian after what Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 1? She replied, well, I am saved by one letter, the letter M. Then she lifted her Bible and read the words Jerry read today. Not many are of noble birth. Not many who are of noble birth are called. She said, thank God Paul didn't say not any, but not many. 
because if there hadn't been an M, I surely would have been closed out of the kingdom of God. Listen again to what Paul says. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater? Where is the philosopher of this age? And I would remind you, he was every one of those things. And in essence, what he is saying is, where are those kinds of people like me? And then he says this, for the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The weakness of God is stronger than any man. And that's exactly what we see in this chapter we've just read, chapter 38 of Genesis. Here we're at the beginning of the Joseph story that will last 17 chapters. And yet right here at the beginning of that story that Henry began to preach last week, we have the story inserted of Judah, his brother. Now remember, Judah was the one brother who convinced the other ones not to kill Joseph, but to sell him. And if you were here last week, Henry did a great job of pointing out the fact that Jesus is all over chapter 37. The treatment that Joseph receives is exactly the same as Jesus received at the hands of his brothers and were among that family. And if that's true, and it is, then of all of the brothers that mirror the brothers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, no one mirrors Judas any better than Judah. Somebody has said, don't miss the critical feature of this chapter. The Bible doesn't shy away from evil behavior. It shows it. It describes it in all of its passion and guilt and anxiety and disorder and hatred and all of the abuse tied up and churned together in one family's dysfunction. Now, that may be one person's description of the passage. That may be many people and many denominations' view of this text. But that's not a very apt description of what we've read. This chapter is way more about God than it is about any of the men described and women. The central feature of this chapter is not found in the human drama. The central feature of this chapter is found in the heart of God. The issue here is not some tangled mess of human relationships. The issue here, and for the rest of Genesis, is not how this family of Jacob is saved. The issue is how God will use this corrupt family to bring to the world the one who will save by grace and by grace alone. This chapter is all about the, great, the greatness of God and the glory of His grace. And you can see it by looking at four prominent D's in this text. So let's begin. First, look at the dereliction beginning in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hiram. Now, if you read ahead in the Bible, you'll see that there's one other guy who goes to uh, Timnah in the same area, and that's Samson. The Bible says Samson went down to Timnah. He saw a young Philistine woman, came back and said to his mother and father, I want you to get her for my wife. Now, how's that for courtship? I found a beautiful woman, and I want you to get her for me. 
But here the Bible says Judah does it differently. He leaves his brothers, he goes 30 miles to Adullam. And there he meets the daughter of a Canaanite whose name is Shua, and he marries her. And instantly you think to yourself, that's so different from his father and his grandfather. Jacob and Isaac were, pro were prohibited from marrying foreign women. In fact, God had been very clear to the parents and the father in particular of any boy in, in the, that nation. And he said you were to refrain from not only marrying, but even being with foreign women who come with foreign gods. It was the responsibility of parents to ensure that their sons married within the household of faith. But knowing that is different than doing it. The word obey in the word translated obey from Hebrew literally means to get under what you hear. And that's what his grandfather did. That's what his father did, but that's not what Judah does. In fact, Judah does what his uncle Esau did. He marries a Canaanite woman, and the result is three sons, and the first-named first son is Ur, as in to Ur is human. <laughs> and when you read about Ur... And his brother Onan, you see that that's exactly what they do. They err badly. In fact, the Bible says something amazing. It says that because of their wickedness, the Lord kills them. Now think of this. When Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't kill them. When Cain killed his brother Abel, God didn't kill him. When Reuben slept with his father's wife, the Lord didn't kill him. The only ones to be killed by God to this point in the Bible are the people of Noah's day and these two sons of Judah. Second, notice not only the dereliction, notice the deceit. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow for your, in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. Do you see his principal concern here? He has three sons and he's lost two of them. And he wants to do everything in his power to keep the third one alive. And so he says to his daughter-in-law, you go home to your father. And when my third son, Shelah, gets old enough, then I'll send word and he can marry you. He can raise up children. Before the Battle of Bull Run, the Confederate General George Stedman stood up and addressed his troops. His basic desire was to motivate them, but he knew that the battle would probably be lost. So he said to them, gentlemen, I want you to fight hard and then run like hell. And then he added, seeing that I'm a bit lame, I'm going to get a head start. <laughs> That's how Judah must have felt. He says to himself, since this woman has come into our family, I've lost two sons. Now I've only got one left. I'm going to say to her, go home to your father, and when the third son, Shayla, gets old enough, I'll send word for you, and you can be married to him. Now, he's lying to her. He's doing exactly what his father Jacob did to his brother Esau. 
Esau had no intention of meeting up, or, or Jacob had no intention of meeting up with his brother. And here Judah has no intention of giving his third son to Tamar. The Bible says in time, Tamar comes to know it. She sees that that son has to be of an age in which he can marry. In time, she sees she's tricked. And so she devises her own plan. Now, I want you to notice something that is pretty obvious if you think of it. This is only the 38th chapter of the Bible. And yet, every, nearly every significant person in the Bible is shown as corrupt and plotting and scheming and pursuing their own agenda. They all do it. Now, there are those who want to suggest that this chapter 38, the story of Judah, is wedged into the middle of the Joseph story to show us the difference between good and clean people like Joseph and dirty ones like Judah. But that's a crock. It's exactly the other way around. The story of Joseph is wedged in among an assortment of dirty characters so that we might come to recognize the truth of the Scriptures, and that is the story of Judah is not about dirt. It's about grace. Everyone is flawed! And yet God's grace prevails. Third, notice the determination. Listen again to what the Lord says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He's speaking to the serpent, and he says this, I will put hatred between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, that's the promise. What God says to that serpent in the garden is, I'm going to raise up one who will crush your head, and it will be of the seed of woman. It'll be a human being. And for 37 chapters, we've watched God keep that promise. He does not choose the line of Cain. He chooses the line of Seth. He doesn't choose the line of Ishmael. He chooses the line of Isaac. He doesn't choose the line of Esau. He chooses the line of Jacob. In other words, I will produce the Messiah through this human line, and you think to yourself at this point, it's got to be Joseph. He's got to be next in line. No one in all of the Old Testament represents Jesus any more clearly than Joseph, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. Certainly, Joseph has to be the one God chooses. And the Bible says, no, it's not Joseph's line. It's out of the line of Judah. God picks a guy who marries a Canaanite. He picks a man whose two sons are killed by God because of their wickedness. He picks a guy who lies to his father or to his daughter-in-law and then he sleeps with her because he thinks she's a prostitute. He picks a guy 
who says to his foreign daughter-in-law, when he discovers how wrong and corrupt he is, he says, you're more righteous than me, and he's right. You know what that means? That means that Paul's right. God takes the foolish things in this world to confound the wise. He's no respecter of persons. God doesn't make decisions the way you and I make them. If God were more like most Bible-believing Christians, Judah wouldn't have a chance to stand in the line of Jesus. But thank God he's not anything like us. He chooses Judah to be the progenitor of his only begotten son. He chooses a man who upon the death of his wife goes up with the sheep shears to get a prostitute. At least that's who he thinks she is. And to this woman, he gives his personal effects, his license and all of his credit cards, his entire identity. You didn't do that. But that's not all he gives her. He gives her twins. One of those twins, God chooses to be in the line of the Messiah. And when you read through this chapter, it's one startling truth after another. God doesn't act like us. Not only does God choose Jew to be the progenitor of Jesus, but he chooses the second born of a Canaanite woman who poses as a prostitute to be the progenitor of the line of his only son. I mean, do you see this? Is there anything that can thwart the grace of God? It's not Joseph's son, it's Judah's son. It's not his son by Shua's daughter, it's his son by Tamar, his daughter-in-law. It's not the firstborn, it's the second. So what's all this tell us? It tells us this. If we disobey the word of the Lord, you'll get a lot of headaches. <laughs> There'll be a lot of drama in your life. You will continue to live, but it'll be a tough road. Should we rebel against the things of the Lord? We may lose. but he always wins. I mean, think of this. Before the beginning of time, before the Garden of Eden, God determined to glorify himself through the sin of Judah and through the life of Tamar and Perez. Where's the wise man? Where's the debater of this age? The answer is nowhere. For God takes the foolish things, the dirty things, the unbelievably corrupt things to confound the wise. And then fourth and finally, notice the drama of His grace. We find that in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Ur. No, the Bible doesn't say that. 
Judah the father of Onan? No, the Bible doesn't say that. It says Judah the father of Perez, whose mother was Tamar. In other words, the son of a Canaanite who posed as a prostitute to get her father-in-law to sleep with her. You say, that's, that's amazing the Bible even mentions it. I mean, it's amazing that most Christians don't know that and read that and see that. It's not amazing if you know who God is. In the whole genealogy of Jesus, there's five women mentioned. Tamar is the first. Tamar is followed by Rahab, a bona fide hooker. Rahab is preceded by Ruth, who's a Moabitess. Who's, she's a part of a group of pagans who worshiped another god. And then there's Bathsheba, an adulteress. And then there's Mary, a 12 or 13-year-old girl who spent most of her life under the cloud of immorality and suspicion. You see, Lady Huntingdon is right. Not many noble are called. For if they were, they'd have something to brag about. They'd have every reason to believe God helps those who help themselves. They'd have every reason to believe that good things come to those who deserve it. Do you think Ed Rushworth deserved it? Do you think Judah deserved it? Do you think Tamar deserved the grace of God? Do you think Perez did? Do you think you do? You know, Martin Luther said there are three functions of the law, and the first is to show, you, show us how dirty we are. I don't know about you, but I, when I look in the mirror of the law, I see a lot more Judah than Joseph. When I look at myself in the law of God, I see a lot more Perez than Paul. I see a lot more Tamar than Timothy. I'm a lot more a debtor to grace than a deserver of it. And I think that's exactly why in the same chapter God gives us the Ten Commandments, He tells us how to worship Him. You know what He says? After He lays out the Ten Commandments, there's about six more verses. And to translate it in a way we'd understand it, he said, okay, I've given you the law, now here's how you're going to worship me. When you build an altar, make it out of dirt. And if you decide to make it out of stone, don't you dare put one of your tools on it. Don't you dare fashion those stones. You just lay them up as you found them. And never put steps up to the altar to expose your nakedness. You know what that means? If you're going to worship me, recognize that you bring nothing to the table but your own sin. Don't you ever believe that you deserve my attention or my blessing? You don't. You never do. 
but it's always yours today and forever because of me and my grace. This week when that guy said my mom died thinking that I was probably lost, I said, how did you feel? He said, I loved her. I didn't want her to go. But mostly I thought, how sad that she, a thoroughgoing Christian, missed the grace. And then he smiled and said, you know, but as soon as she passed from this life to the next, she knew everything about it. May you and I forever. Amen.